welcome to Finding Genius. My name is Kyle O'Brien. Uh, if you haven't been here before, I'm also an operating partner at Revaya, a VC fund based here in Paris, and I also read a newsletter on the French tech ecosystem called Startup ROI. Uh, today, I want to welcome to the video series Josh Gilak, the CTO and co-founder of Orbit, which is an online community platform uh, based here in Paris, but I think we'll get into kind of his team structure uh, a little bit later in the call. Josh, welcome to Finding Genius. Thanks for having me, Kyle. Really happy to be here. Yeah. Likewise. Well, I wanted to start off uh, kind of because we have a similar backgrounds. I think we're two Midwesterners living in Paris, and uh, that's somewhat atypical, uh, maybe maybe less so in post-pandemic times. But wanted to talk about your origin story, where you're from uh, in the U.S., and, and how did you get into the tech sector? Yeah, sure. Um, so let's see, I, I grew up outside of Chicago, Northern Illinois, and... Um, uh, kind of fell uh, fell in love with computing at a pretty pretty early age with a, an Apple II that I bought at a garage sale and some other hardware that was that was laying around. I don't know if it was really programming, but it was making spreadsheets and, and sure. just generally getting to getting to know software. And uh, then I went to um, <clears throat> I went to the University of Illinois for uh, computer science, um, and that was that was really interesting. Only about three hours south of where I grew up, um, but still kind of a, a whole new world. A um, lot of stuff happening. I was very focused on studies. I was not very privy to the startup ecosystem and everything happening back then. Okay. Um, I, I think it was kind of the day, days of uh, PayPal and like Max Levchin moving to Silicon Valley and things like that. I was mostly oblivious. I was just trying to finish my degree <laughs> and then eventually, uh, eventually get a job and right. worked in uh, big companies for a while and then uh, hopped over to startups. And that's kind of got me on the path that you know, ultimately led to, to creating Orbit and, and all that and happy to dig in wherever. Yeah, so I, I guess in that era when you were graduating from from college, you mentioned you were zeroed in on on your studies, but there must have been some kind of distant attraction to Silicon Valley culture or this emerging Silicon Valley culture. What was your process after school, applying to to gigs and trying to move out west? Yeah, in there, there was a bit in school where. Um, Toward, toward the end of me uh, being there, uh, this startup called Facebook started to come kind of on the scene. And I, I actually I actually remember um, just as a little side project, making a web application where like some of the people that I lived with could upload their photo and write a little status message. And at the time I was like, oh, this is really cool. And then I didn't do anything like that for five years. I joined Accenture right out of college okay. because there was the promise of travel. Um, and, uh, and I, I wanted to travel. I wanted to get out of the Midwest a little bit and uh, bounce around. And so I, I joined Accenture out of college um, doing a lot of Java. It was actually very technical. This was still back when you could be like a, uh, a consultant at one of the big firms, but still be very technical, be a technical architect, work with that. I think that's still possible, but I think it's a little bit less common um, mm -hmm. these days. But it was really good because I did get to learn a lot about enterprise technology, financial services, banks, and eventually it brought me to uh, Phoenix and then the Bay Area. So that's how I ultimately got to the Bay Area. It was not like, hey, I want to go do startups. This is awesome. Uh, you know, I want to go put it all on the line. It was much more of I was at Accenture. I was looking for a client uh, in California because California just sounded cool and I'd never been there. And uh, one of my buddies was staffed at an insurance company in Northern California and was able to pull some strings and get me onboarded to that project. And uh, then I was in the Bay Area for 12 years. 
So I kind of stuck uh, yeah. once I got there. <laughs> yeah. Well, can you uh, can you tell me about a couple of the the companies you joined in the Bay Area at that time? I know uh, a couple of them. Uh, one in particular, Algolia, which is uh, a well known French tech company, <laughs> but I, I suppose they had a, a presence out in uh, in California at the time. And what it was like joining uh, a kind of a fast paced, high growth startup in that that era? Yeah, it was. Um... Uh, it, it was a great, great experience. Um, you know, the one one job before that um, I worked at and, and kind of was on the founding team for a startup called Keen, which was my first foray into developer tools, developer communities, building APIs. Um, this was the time when kind of Twilio was blowing up and Stripe was starting to really hit their stride. Um, and so when, uh, so post Keen, I really wanted to be, um, not just an engineer, but starting to like do more of the developer advocacy work that I'd been doing for when I was at Keen, I was the VP of engineering, but we we're very community focused. And so a lot of my, my work was also focused on building the community on understanding like what people were trying to use the technology for going to meetups, working with the developer advocates there. Um, so when I hopped from Keen to Algolia, it was really the first time that I had done a, uh, any kind of community role, advocacy role, something like that. And I had met Nicola and Julian, um, the founders of Algolia, when I was at Keen, right before or maybe right after they had gone through Y Combinator. So we had met some number of years before I actually reached back out to them and said, hey, I'm, I'm looking for my next thing. Uh, are you hiring any developer advocates yet? The company was around 35 people at the time. And, and sure enough, that's actually a role that they were looking for. And um, I joined in the San Francisco office. There, there was a San Francisco office at that time. I think it was maybe 10 or 15 people. You're right, the majority of the team was, uh, was in Paris. But I got to spend about half of my time in Paris. Um, actually, being a developer advocate, you have to work with so many different people in the company. And so I was working a lot with uh, marketing and sales uh, in San Francisco. And then I was working with more design engineering product while I was over here in Paris. Right. Um, but no one can keep a, that much travel for very long and, and that much arrangement. And uh, just before I joined Algolia, I met my future wife on a trip to Thailand. And uh, she's French. And so the combination of that plus uh, Algolia is ultimately why I permanently came to France and, and have been here ever since. So, but it was, it was kind of a hard work, which sounds like a pretty, a pretty typical uh, experience here. Yes. Yeah. It, it very much, uh, it, it very much was. Um, and so yeah, things, it's like the dominoes fall or, yeah. or something like that. It wasn't just one thing. It was that, right. uh, I just looked like the best path at, at the time. And sure. I'm, I'm really glad that I did. It's been, uh, it, it's been fantastic being here. Yeah. Well, I, I was, um, I was in a role where, you know, I was responsible for a team in, in Paris and New York, and that's only a six hour difference. So oh. I can imagine that travel back and forth between San Francisco and, and Paris can be fairly grueling. Um, but there is one kind of uh, challenge, problem, uh, you know, dis discussion topic that I find pretty fascinating that, that comes up uh, pretty often today, which is uh, cultural differences between Silicon Valley and X. And in our case, it's typically Paris and what is the Paris French tech ecosystem like. Um, but in the world where, you know, the, the flat world we're living in, the post-pandemic world, distributed world we're living in, um, you've probably read, you know, Balaji's 
long treaties on uh, the Silicon Valley's ultimate exit. Now everywhere is going to become uh, kind of a, a, a mini prototype of Silicon Valley. Um, I'd like to zoom in maybe a little bit on the, the Paris ecosystem, and maybe we can start with your experience being a developer advocate in San Francisco for a French tech company uh, that was was building its its roots uh, out west. I, I think that must have been a, a pretty interesting place to be, especially in a nascent kind of French tech environment, at least in those days. Yeah, it was it was a few. It, it was interesting because community and and developer relations, developer advocacy, that was really just starting to be more defined. Um, it still wasn't very defined. So um, when I went to Algolia, I had kind of a, an interesting double challenge of working in a non-U.S. based culture for the first time, um, and then also developer relations, establishing the first type of that role at the at the company and where the whole industry of developer relations was still figuring out, like, what do we call this? What do we call that? What do we do here? Um, are, should we live in marketing? Should we live in product? Should we live anywhere else in the company? So there's a lot of definition. Um, and uh, I, I certainly learned my share of cultural, uh, you know, cultural lessons, fitting in, things like that. Um, uh, you know, differences in terms of feedback, how it's given, how it's received. Um, and boy, I mean, just, just a lot of, lot of different things there. I think particularly one of the things with, um, community and, and DevRel is that it, it requires kind of a, a long-term commitment. You don't always know what's working along the way. This is kind of the classic problem. And this is one thing we try to help people solve at Orbit. Um, so depending on like how, how much a culture it depends on an immediate results and showing value at like each step of the way versus like winging it for a little bit longer. I think Silicon Valley's Silicon Valley companies at that time were probably less quantitative in in some in some regards. So one of the things that um, that I had to essentially get better at when I joined Algolia was reporting metrics around community. So I had a lot of examples from Silicon Valley where it really wasn't being done yet, and it was a little bit more like let's take it on faith. And that, sometimes that worked. Uh, it didn't always work. And so that was, it was in some ways a trial by fire, uh, but I just learned, learned a ton by trying to figure out how to do that. How can community present the same level of metrics as like marketing, sales, product, um, things like that. So it's a very, very inspirational experience. Yeah, and there's been quite a, a bit of work in the, the community spaces that's formalized as a, a role uh, or, a, or a title at, at most companies that I would imagine a decade ago, just there was just no vocabulary. There's no way to articulate it necessarily. So you were kind of feeling your way through the dark and and, and coming up with the the metrics that made the most sense at the time, but have become somewhat you know, industry standards at this point. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah, we were really trying to figure it out uh, as as we were going, and it's um, uh, not. Oh yeah, one one thing you can observe that is different between now and then is when companies are looking for their first um, community hire, their first developer developer advocate hire, um, as a sense for like the kind of the the belief in the in the value of that kind of growth or, or kind of that having having that kind of person. Right. Um, at Al at Algolia, I, like I mentioned, I joined around 35, 40 people. But the, the whole engineering team um, and really the whole company had been doing a version of advocacy and a version of community at that point. They've been doing open source libraries. They've been doing meetups, talks, hosting events at their, at their space in Paris. 
So it's the, I didn't come on and do the first advocacy. That was actually already happening. My job was to kind of build that into a program and, and accelerate it and, and give it even more leverage. But now I think any you know, a company that's making a developer tool or building a community first, their community endeavor all hires are in the first 10 people, sometimes the first five, sometimes one of the founders. 40 would be, I think, a, a crazy number too for a community-led company developer-facing company, whoever it is, to, to hire their first community people. But back then, that was like, okay, it's about the right time. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit more about community. I mean, this is something that's been on my mind lately. Uh, it's actually in my new my new title at the, the VC that I'm working at. I, I lead content and community efforts, so I'm now formally, uh, you know, some sort of community advocate, or <laughs> at least on my LinkedIn profile, I am. Um, that's great. And I, you know... It, my previous experience, I've worked on community products. So at Salesforce, they had their community cloud, which was more of a, a B2B kind of service-oriented uh, uh, community uh, that, that bolted onto your CRM. Uh, I worked at a startup here in, in Paris um, that is more of a kind of alumni networking community, privatized LinkedIn. I worked at another startup that was actually implementing a community strategy. So we, we, we leveraged an existing tool and started to onboard customers into the community and, and built you know, groups and uh, conversation topics and in-person events. So I've, I've seen kind of all sides of the the, the many-sided die um, that is yeah. uh, community and community management. Uh, your expertise falls neatly within the, the developer category. Uh, maybe I'm making an assumption there, but can you talk about what you know developer advocacy and community building is like? Like, what are the what are the fundamentals for those who haven't really experience it firsthand or aren't developers themselves, but work in tech and kind of hear rumblings, but haven't been to an event. Yeah, yeah, I can, I can try to, to do that. Maybe look at some first principles. Yeah. Um, like what one in community is you're, you're connecting people to each other and you're building a, building a network of people and that network has a mission. Like it's not just a network, but it also has a mission, a place that it's trying to go. Yeah. And that, that can be the big difference with things that other people have done where it's more about my relationship with this person. Community is about these people's relationship with each other or this person's relationship to other members. So you end up, um, a lot of the job is making introductions and trying to figure out who can add value for the like other people in the community. So in an open source community, very common thing that is needed is to find more contributors, find more maintainers, um, support users uh, and it comes down to like the roles that people play in the community and helping grow those people into roles so a lot of like very good um, community advocacy developer advocacy that i observe is connecting members to each other who can help them grow into the roles that they need to play for the overall community to be able to to scale um, we say at orbit we have this concept of gravity which is like a kind of the attractive force that keeps people coming to the community that, that keeps it valuable and that gravity is based on the number the connections in the network and also the the deepness of the involvement that members have and you can grow a community if it has enough gravity you can't grow a community if it's if there's not a lot of gravity because just like uh like you you pour a bunch of people onto the top of the community and you you've you've certainly seen this before uh, playing such a variety of, of community roles, like you, you can't always just grow the community. But a lot of, that's what a lot of people want these days. They're like, oh, let's grow the community. Um, and if you're a first-time developer advocate or community advocate, you might really be given that mission of growth. 
But if you only pursue growth, you're actually going to shoot yourself in the foot. You'll create a space that no one actually wants to be at, and you won't see members deep in their involvement. So we say you have to create growth and gravity at the same time. So you're making the community bigger, but you're also making it more able to provide the same experiences to new members as like the early members. So you're kind of like keeping the value, keeping the core of the, the community together. That's one of the hardest things to um, wrap uh, someone's head around is you have to, you, you can't just have new people come all the time. You have to find stuff for them to do and it has to be the right stuff and it has to be with other people that they meet. And that, that alchemy is... Uh, not not usually something that someone has practiced in <laughs> in a role like that before, right. and it's a very it's a very weird kind of thing, and it's like a je ne sais quoi almost that that community builders um, uh, you know have or develop over time. Yeah, I mean that reminds me of a, a framework that we held near and dear uh, at one of my previous startups, which was an adoption, engagement, retention framework for getting people involved in the community. You have to. You know, yeah. facilitate them getting to adopt the, the tool, whatever that tool may be, whether that is actually a community tool or the product or service you provide, uh, engaging them throughout the process. So day one has to be equally as engaging as day five and year one, uh, whatever you want to say. Yeah, that's and, it. Uh, and then figure out how to retain them and keep them on the platform uh, long into their, their customer life cycle or, or membership life cycle, whatever that may be. Um, and that, like you said, that that is an alchemy that's not, well-defined. I mean, I, I think it's a little different in every community and it's, 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 uh, it depends on who your audience is. So in my experience, there's been a lot of audience segmentation, persona mapping, uh, identifying, you know, champions and leaders within the community to help delegate, uh, some of the responsibility to, they can take ownership as well and represent the brand as an ambassador. Um, is, is that something you see kind of happen organically in the developer communities? Because there is a very specific shared purpose around, building a product together, uh, like in an open source situation. Um, how, how does that differ from other types of communities that you've been a part of? Yeah, great, great question. I do think developer communities have a bit of an advantage in terms of the self-organization because yeah. of because everyone knows what, what the mission is. It's to build this software. Um, they don't know exactly what software to build, where it should go. There's always like a, a group at the core who are, you know, governing, stewarding, trying to figure out the direction of the project. Yeah. Um, but, you know, that, I mean, tooling like, you know, GitHub and other things that exist that makes that easy. And it also just makes it easy for, for people to, to contribute. So like the core, the core atoms of contribution in developer community and the purpose of it helps, helps people do the right thing. Um, that took a while to build, but now 10 years later, 15 years later, after a lot of the tooling and open source itself is many decades old, like people just you know, developers are able to figure out what to do. Not every community has that same um, historical kind of a, or cultural or tribal embedded knowledge about um, what what people should do. So there, um, I think some of the things that you said around like giving giving people roles, finding champions, understanding like the layers of the community and for every champ, you know, how many champions do I need? If I have a thousand people, then maybe I need a hundred champions. If I have 20,000 community members or 2 million community members, I might need a different number. Um, and so, you know, I, there's what one, one framework we use for thinking of different kinds of communities is pro, uh, product, practice, and play, call it like the three Ps. 
and uh, product community is around like a SaaS product or uh, open source. A practice community is a community of practice that could be you know people who are all helping each other get better at art or poetry or writing or their job or something like that. And yeah. then play is you know fun and passion. And I think um, e each of those has a different. Uh, a, a different set of rules and, and there also there's a, a different kind of ratio of participation like how many people are there to watch and um, more passively consume or passively participate versus there to actually volunteer actively contribute actively own so the ratios are also very different between like a club a stadium a federation these different like what we call topologies of, yeah. of communities and uh the rule is for, for me and when I talk to community builders is figure out what topology you are and, and then build the community that way. But if you don't know if you're a club or a stadium or a federation with lots of pockets of gravity, then, then it's hard to have a community strategy. So you have to, you have to know what shape you want to become. Great. Yeah, I like that. Can you uh, tell me more about Orbit and the platform that you've built over the years, how people are using it, uh, maybe some different instances of uh, customer stories that could highlight how exactly it functions and what kind of features functionality there uh, there there is to uh, to offer. Sure, yeah, happy to to talk about that. We we're very space oriented and space themed over here at Orbit, as you, you might imagine. Um, so we think of it as mission control. Okay. We think of it as as kind of a um, an airplane cockpit that you can sit in and have signals sent to you. Like, what are people in the community doing? Where, uh, what platforms are they contributing on? Um, when are they reaching certain thresholds or certain milestones of their engagement that might represent like opportunities for you to reach out? Um, so what we try to do is from those kind of massive uh, stream of, uh, stream of data that a community creates, pick out the most important signals, and then try to try to get those in our users' hands, so that even a small community team is able to kind of manage this these kind of very big, sometimes multi-million member communities. Mm -hmm. That you you can't just like be two people and or even ten people and do right. that. Um, so some of the the features are around that kind of um, detecting interesting milestones and then providing integrations to tools like Slack, um, Zapier. So where, uh, wherever the, uh, the community team is living or the organization that that community team is a part of, you would try to like build tooling to, to push that activity back there. Also to push it to other like company data sources. If the company wants to analyze, let's say their, their community data alongside other data in their warehouse, or if they want um, things like community participation available in Salesforce, then they can, they can do those things and, and put that together. Um, and then uh, let's see what else. We, we invest a lot in reporting. Uh, we think it's very important that community teams are able to prove the value of their work and show the ROI of community. So we have a, a big and very customizable reports module. Um, let's see. And uh, for the developers, we have an API where they can actually send any kind of activity to Orbit, not just from one of their standard community platforms, but let's say they have an internal education or something like that. Uh, they can send that data in, and then they can use that to determine, um, you know, where, like, what is what does an engagement path look like for a member? When should I offer them the right thing? Like, when's the right time? And so, that's really what we're what we're trying to do is help people build the the gravity of their community, yeah. and and that's you know just a lot about surfacing the right information that that leads to an action that a community builder wants to take, and and that is something you know satisfactory and, and happy and fulfilling for the member. Can you tell me where it sits within the, the 
kind of massive enterprise tech stack. So I, I can see in a developer use case, like this layering on to like GitHub, for example, on an open source project, you can, I don't know, maybe track information that, that's taking place. But in the example that you mentioned where you're integrating with a, a Salesforce or a Slack, maybe you have a R&D developer team or, or something like that, or you have, a, you know, partnerships or, uh, you know, some sort of ecosystem. Uh, you know, Apple, for example, has a you know, massive, or Microsoft has a massive developer ecosystem. They would want to use this and plug it into their tools to give visibility across the enterprise while also keeping their third parties engaged. So what's a typical use case look like and, and uh, how, how, how do you go about like setting that up and, and empowering the, the would-be admins in this community? Hmm. Yeah, I think w one thing we, um, uh, we, we spend time on with the, the bigger, the bigger communities that, that come and, and find us, you know, we, we like to be very hands-on and, and spend time with them. So we figure out kind of like who in the organization needs access to what community data and like who shouldn't have access to certain kinds of data. We're also, we're very, uh, very concerned about privacy and, and things like that. We want to make sure that like, um, if an organization, uh, like, I mean, like you said, there's so many teams in an organization that are going to interact with the community partnerships, biz dev, sales, marketing, everyone like that. Um, so we try to personalize or customize the experience based on that. It's not something we do a ton of yet. So it's not like you log into Orbit and you're like, I'm part of this team at Microsoft and like magically everything just transforms and shows you that. Something we, we want to do for in the future because we're seeing that um, just in our data, we're seeing that more users than even we expected from each organization are joining Orbit to see like what's going on with the community. How can I interact with it? It's not just the community team. Um, so for us on our, on our roadmap, we want to make like, want to ma make sure that we can support people in, in those different cases and then allow them to collaborate. Um, but inside the organization, it, it depends, like often each department or each team has their own set of tools. Like there's kind of the, the blessed company stack and Salesforce is in there and all the big stuff is in there, but then each team uh, might have totally different tools, and that's why we, we try to both have an API and then also invest in like low-code, no-code integration. So we have a Zapier app, uh, things like that, that you know anybody on the team who knows how to do that can then plug that data into their workflow. But it's a really interesting part of the, the challenge to solve because there's just so many different ways to use the data and people coming from different, uh, different functions uh, with, with different ideas on how to do it. So it's, um, that's been... Uh, gratifying and also uh, quite a, a prioritization uh, challenge. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I, uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask about Web3 and kind of this uh, obsession around community-led growth. I, it might not be your uh, area of focus, but it's probably something that occupies some portion of your day-to-day -day thought, and you see it on Twitter and online, <laughs> probably getting feedback from customers. Um, Paris Blockchain Week was, was here not too long ago. I don't know if you had a chance to swing by. Uh, there's a lot of activity going on in the region and, and in broader Europe. Uh, so I wanted to get your take on Web3, how we can apply some of the community-based thinking that's been around for you know, decades now that's being layered onto the blockchain crypto principles, uh, how that might work, uh, why it is working in certain cases. I mean, there's a number of community-led uh, NFT projects that have become extremely successful. Um, so I wanted to get your take yeah. overall, and then maybe we can drill into a couple 
a couple areas that, that uh, you find interesting? Sure. Yeah, I, I, I'll say, you know, I'm definitely not um, not an expert, but um, I, I do have a Twitter feed and I, I see lots of stuff come through there. And it is really cool to see just how much um, community like activity there is. I mean, there's no doubt with DAOs and, and Web3, there's such a, a strong community story, like people coming together, like I said uh, before, like a network of people with a mission. I mean, so many of the these projects are, are exactly that. What changes is obviously the incentivization. So like, you know, tokens and uh, airdrops and things like that are, are different than some kinds of intrinsic community value or kind of project-based value like uh, developer community. We use this project together, but there's no, there's no walls between any of those things. A lot of Web3 projects are about like, let's create a piece of software together that does this. Uh, a lot of them are, you know, so the, um, I think that a lot of the, like all of the community paradigms are going to be created or reused or changed, you know, by a lot of this this activity that's coming in. Um, what I uh, when I have a minute to to kind of keep an eye on it, some of my favorite things are to to like look at the incentive structures and see how how can non Web three communities benefit um, from that like high incentivization that web3 communities have like sometimes like gamification or some incentivization one thing i think like non-crypto non-web3 communities don't think about enough is that layer um in 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 community engagement i mean we don't want to go and gamify uh, everything but rewards recognition incentivizing those are often like healthy things in a community if they're if they're put in there in the right way yeah um, and then I think the Web3, there, there's a lot of like historical community building um, knowledge and wisdom that they can tap into. Like, what do you do about moderation? What do you do about people who are not doing what you want? What do you do about um, things like that? There are communities who are 20, 30 years old, and there are forum platforms, other platforms, tools that have been working with that for a long time. And I don't, I don't know how much those two worlds are talking to each other, but the, uh, there's probably a lot of opportunity there for like the kind of old community and the new community to share a lot of the knowledge in, in both directions. Yeah. Something I, I was speaking to uh, another guest, uh, Mike, the, the CEO of 3DM a few weeks back, and uh, he works in 3D e-commerce, and he sees a huge opportunity to be the bridge between 3D e-commerce and Web3. So you know, it used to be that you would want to take a shoe, for example, and render it in 3D so that Someone that's shopping on your site is more incentivized to check it out. Perhaps you know increases their intent to purchase. You know, pretty obvious use case in hindsight. But now the question is, how, you know, how, how does that impact supply chain? So, for example, maybe I go into an AR environment and I look or try on clothes, and then I don't actually have to, you know, we don't have to have a huge uh, a warehouse or a bunch of uh, you know additional um, stock of those clothes. We can make them on a custom basis and send them to someone. Or in the opposite direction, you know, maybe someone has clothes that they wear in their everyday life and they want to go wear them in the, the metaverse. Uh, so maybe there's a, a kind of physical to digital transition. So the, the way he articulated was a, a Web 2.5 company and they, they want to build the pipeline <laughs> from Web 2 to Web 3. And I, I, I saw some parallels between kind of what, what you're doing in the, in the community space uh, for developers. You know, do, do you see uh, Orbit or... or Maybe not Orbit specifically, but do you see an opportunity for uh, a bridge between between the two? I mean, it, it, kind of what based on your previous answer, I'm assuming there's a there's a yes there. I'm not sure how technical we, we, we can get on that topic though. 
Yeah, I, I do think there's uh, I do think there's a yes. Um, I think that there's like an online offline counterpart and then there's also the web two, web three counterpart where these things are gonna be more more intermeshed than we than we see them today. Right. Um, I I think a lot, you know, what we could look to see is some historically web two or older communities start to adopt like some some things coming from from Web3, I think that that's something that can happen. I've already seen it a little bit like rewards or swag or giving away NFTs or something like that. You know, even if the whole community isn't um, isn't a Web3 community, they might still be adopting some of those. So that feels a little bit like kind of Web2.5. Mm. Um, and it's also interesting interesting to see SaaS tools uh, try to accommodate Web3 too and then try to figure out, you know, figure out how that's how that's going to work. Um, we we have a lot of Web three users today because we have a Discord integration and the Discord Discord is obviously very popular in Web three and um, so we we're working with with a lot of uh, our customers and our users today to kind of figure out like what um, from just like a community management and Discord perspective is there anything different um, that you would need compared to a, a non Web three community how do you set roles how do you assign things um, so we we have those conversations trying to you know it's it's ultimate the ultimate challenge to figure out kind of what to do and when but that's where i see um you know i, I see some of that that bridging is going to take place through platforms that that need to figure out how to accommodate everybody yeah well let's take a, a step back from uh the the fully digital realm the, <laughs> the metaverse uh so-called metaverse and talk about you're building physical community in the, in the context of founding a, a company abroad. So I think I can speak firsthand of what it's like to, to move here and to join a startup here, uh, to try to kind of fight your way into the, the ecosystem. Uh, and, and it's probably different in every city and every country. Uh, we're probably fit to discuss our experience in, in Paris and in France. Um, but what was it like starting a company abroad uh, and I don't remember when exactly you started. Was it in? Was it pre twenty seventeen? I'm assuming, or in in that time frame. Yeah, Orbit was twenty nineteen, and the predecessor to it, which was a, a small kind of consulting thing that my co-founder and I um, uh, created, worked together on. That was like two thousand eighteen, maybe. Okay. Um, and the yeah, it's it's um. It's in, still an interesting journey. It's not an easy ride to start start a company in a foreign country and start a company in in uh, uh, in France. Um, kind of deal with like like one thing we didn't have to deal with was creating a company here and then having to reincorporate it to take funding. Um, that was that was nice. Like we when we did our pre seed round, that was just a very standard like let's become a Del Delaware corporation, U.S. based. Just be on the the normal track there, um, but um, as we've uh, as we've scaled up uh, and wanted to hire globally, we've like done all the things, tried all the solutions, anything from the SaaS companies that help you pay people in, in different countries, to um, we now have our own SAS in France because we're really dedicated to growing here. So we've uh, and once you reach ten people, there are certain requirements and things like that. So what what we did is. Uh, look at a few countries that we're very confident in, have a lot of future orbiters in them, and then try to make sure in those countries we can provide uh, an employment experience that feels seamless, transparent, 
uh, we can give TK Resto in France, you know, we can do things like that. Um, because oftentimes, um, and especially in Europe, uh, that's what people want. They don't want to be an independent contractor because it, it's a pain in the butt and then they have to do a lot of stuff on their own. And uh, so we, we currently have people in maybe 11 different countries, but um, and we try to provide an, an employment experience that's as consistent as we can across those countries, but uh, the re it, it depends. Yeah. The reality is we, we can't control everything in that equation. In, in the beginning, was it were you purely based here in, in Paris, recruiting uh, developers from schools around France, or did you start out in a relatively uh, decentralized manner? Yeah, I from the beginning, I was here in Paris, and my co-founder Patrick is in San Francisco. Okay. So we we've always been nine hours apart or eight hours apart for four weeks a year because of the the time zone thing, um, <laughs> a crazy thing. Always, always gets us, throws the whole company off four <laughs> weeks a year. Um, and uh, our first employee was hired here in Paris, um, and he was an engineer that I knew from the Jamstack Paris meetup. So actually someone, someone that I knew from the, he was the organizer of that meetup, um, and that, that's how I knew him. And uh, then we hired a few people in the U.S., and then we've hired a few more people here. So it was actually... Um, pretty, pretty even in terms of the, the early team, uh, adding people in more on the Europe side, adding people on the, um, uh, the U S side. And we all, we also have six people, uh, in Africa that we, that, that work for us. Um, so we're like kind of very much, uh, time zone, you know, from, from, uh, minus nine or minus seven, all the way to plus two, plus right. three. We have, we, that, that's where we operate, but we don't go beyond that. And, and how does that impact workflow? I mean, are you working mostly asynchronously? And I would imagine that applying some of your community management skill set uh, internally as well as externally to customers is, uh, comes in handy. Yeah, I mean that it's it's always the it's always the challenge. We have about two hours a day where we can do synchronous meetings across SF and. Um, uh, and in and, and Paris, uh, thankfully, we have a pretty good team in the, the East Coast, the, the Midwest. The, so there's a little bit of gradation there. Um, but async by default for, for pretty much everything. Uh, we try to focus synchronous meeting time on problem solving, on um, demos, basically on, on things that just really lose their luster or hard to do async. Um, but things like status, we try to really do a lot of that synchronously. We write a lot. Um, writing, written communication is a huge part of the culture, yeah. and and to your to your point, we do, we do think um, you know try to think of the the company as a community. It very much is a community of its own, and so we think about like the different roles that people play and how we can pass information along the network in a way that everybody gets it and everybody can understand. Um, so it's. Uh, yeah, I'd say it's definitely a, a work a work in progress. I love the fact that we're distributed, and I feel like we get um, an amazing amount of work done from doing that. But figuring out how to best use synchronous time and and how to do the calendar Tetris that that involves that is the that's something we haven't totally cracked yet. Yeah. That's still pretty pretty challenging. Well, I, it sounds like you're doing a, a pretty fair job. There's a, a lot of people that are are new to this. Uh, and many people that actually didn't really want that to necessarily be the default, but are adjusting to new norms in a, a post-pandemic era, uh, you know, employment um, standards. Yeah. Uh, so 
it's good that, good that you have a, a little background and, and some experience, and I'm sure plenty of wisdom to share, uh, lessons learned. Um, I'm curious how, you know, you, you just mentioned that incorporating in Paris and then incorporating in the U.S. was relatively simple. There's a, there's a, a decent number of companies now that are helping you employ and make sure you're compliant uh, across different uh, countries, regions. What is it like raising venture capital in this environment? Uh, has the distributed team uh, element given you a, an edge because you kind of know how to do it or you feel that you've, you've built a, a good uh, rhythm and workflow? Uh, has that given you access to different forms of capital or different investors in different regions because of your kind of multi localization? Can you just talk about like what, what was the, the, yeah, kind of the, how did you initiate the fundraising process? What has it been like? And, and what were some of your pros and cons as a result of your, your org structure? Mm. <clears throat> yeah, I, I would say, you know, be, being distributed means that we, we get, um, you know, to talk with, with more, you know, potential investors when we're, when we're going out and doing, if we want to do something um, like synchronously. Mm. Uh, so like kind of build, building the relationships that's always a part of that that process you know that's uh, my co-founder lives in San Francisco so he's very much like ground zero um, able to meet with um, and, you know and, and build relationships with the investors in in the valley and um, our pre-seed was in 2019 so we did have um, that that was that was actually a pretty typical like um, let's go back and forth on the Caltrain to Menlo Park three times a week and see if we can raise a round. Yeah. You know, that, that wasn't very distributed at all, to be frank. That was, I flew to, to San Francisco and we just, you know, went, took the train down to Sand Hill Road a couple times. And, uh, and, and, but then, but when I, when we started to get a little more momentum, momentum, I was able to start building some relationships with VCs and investors over here in Europe. And um, Algolia had, uh, investors from the U.S. and Europe, um, and I was when I was there, I was able to kind of see, um, you know, how how some of those relationships worked, I guess, and and like how the the founders were were very aware of that and building relationships kind of across across everywhere. Um, so I think that it took some some inspiration. Um, now that everything is, you know, very Zoom oriented and, and connected, I think that the in-person probably matters a little a little bit less um, in terms of the relationship building. But we are we are looking to grow in Europe. Um, local experience is still, I think, very, very important. Um, and, and especially for companies with a lot of U.S. roots and maybe don't have a founder who is from uh, one of the big markets they operate, like I live here in France, but I'm, I'm not from here. There's a lot that I don't know. Um, and so I think as we, we get bigger, it's something we, we keep our eye on, like in terms of hiring, employment, legal, things like that, what we're going to run into as we grow um, operating in different countries. You know, that, that's where um, I think investors can provide a lot of value when they have local knowledge there. So you're, um, I mean, speaking of, of knowledge and investor relationships, uh, it's, it's been a, a fairly, um, well, I don't know if it's atypical, but there, there's been a flood of uh, cash, let's put it that way, in the past couple of years. So a lot of uh, momentum, hype, energy uh, around you know, traditional VCs, uh, new angel syndicates. You know, it feels like everyone's an investor these days. Um, now I'm actually in that world to a degree. And so... I'm, I'm starting to get you know, fairly familiar with how it operates, but I'm also fascinated by the different types 
the different types of money. I mean, historically, you heard about smart money and dumb money, but now you've got fast money or slow money. You've got people with specific domain expertise. Uh, you have a couple of, of you know, very renowned, impressive uh, investors on your cap table, Andreessen Horowitz and, and Kotu. So curious what kind of value they bring to you. What was, you know, kind of the differentiator in, in, the, um, in, in the discussions? And then moving forward, as you as you expand, uh, I think you kind of answered in the previous question. What, what would you be looking for as you expand within Europe or, let's say, Asia, for example? Does that does that change the calculus for you as to who you might want to uh, to join the round? It's it's a good question. You know, I I, I know that for us people are <clears throat> people are definitely kind of the the most important part of the the equation and also the knowledge of what we're doing and the like the conviction the willingness to get behind it um, a couple of years ago the community space had not taken off in the way that it has um, in the last couple of years and for us like very early on it was really clear who who got what we were doing and who didn't and the people that we had the the best relationship with and were the um, and, and who were able to see that and have those kind of conversations with us about where are we going in the future, um, you know, exploring big questions together like, you know, can this be a big thing? Can this not be a big thing? What kind of team will we need? And just in, in general, like, do we, is, is there a belief that business is changing to be more community driven and that's going to create all kinds of interesting opportunities? The, the people that we could have that conversation with are the ones we loved and ultimately ended up working with. The people who were not able to get there quickly enough, well, the, the, <laughs> that didn't work out. So I think the, the, there's the people side and then there's just like, there's no substitute for really feeling like someone has, um, has a passion for the space, is willing to learn, is willing to think through it together, is willing to anticipate challenges. So that part is just really for me like people and experience oriented and that can come from anywhere. It could come from, from all over the world. Um, but I think as a, as a company scales, then, then the calculus changes a little bit. Um, then it could be more about like, we're trying to scale in this market. Maybe we need someone on the cap table who really knows this market or who knows this type of company or who knows enterprise or who knows web three or something like that. So that calculus in the beginning around someone who's, who's really willing to get behind the idea and have a lot of passion for it, you know, that, that changes a little bit. I think we're still, um, we're kind of in, you know, in between those worlds. We're, we're still a startup. We're not a full scale up yet. So I think, you know, it's still really important to my co-founder and I that we have people on the team who really believe in the mission, who are really excited to, to bring this thing into the world um, and, and to ultimately, like, make um, make community such an integral part of the fabric of building a company or, and then things, uh, building uh, um, everything. So... Let's uh, see. I hope I answered the question in in, no, in some I, I some I way. A, I think that's a good answer. It you know it, it changes uh, with with time, but I think that um, uh, as we you know as, as a company grows and they see like oh we, we need this pocket of, of knowledge or this information or, or someone who can uh, who can help us understand this corner of the world, that's uh, that's where where great partnerships can be formed. Yeah, well, I think that's some sage advice for. Any first-time founders looking to uh, to raise funds? Um, I want to. I think that's a good place to close. I do want to offer up a, a quick opportunity to end here, being a, a you know a, a CTO and, and a leader in the, the tech space in France and also a community builder. 
if there's any amazing kind of communities that you joined that helped you early on uh, being an expat in in uh, in Europe, uh, or perhaps later on in in your your time here that have been super helpful, any of those that you would advocate uh, folks join if they're they're looking for uh, some others to to mingle with. Oh, good, good question. I know it's on the spot, um, so I, I didn't. I didn't no, that's uh, I, I love it. Um, the the names of some of them will escape me. I did a language learning community that that I really liked, and it's the very traditional one where it's kind of a lot of like students and just once a week you do a, a conversation partner sure. thing. Um, I've maybe the name will come to me or we can put it in the show notes. <laughs> but can, I thought you can send it after and I can add with the show notes. Yeah, no I thought that that one was good. Um and let's see. Otherwise um you know, I, I think I benefited a lot from like some of the, the early programming um like the uh places like the family, places like Station F. Um I never played a big role in those communities, but was able to like go to events and build connections through those events uh, with with other people. So I mean, it's kind of like it is definitely in the in the realm of community. Um, uh, so so I can definitely say like people and programs through there have uh, were were a part of helping me make connections here, learn, uh, meet entrepreneurs, meet investors, things like that. Um, uh, and and if if I think of any more, I will I will let you know. Um, I I I would love to start one. Um, is the other thing I would say. So I don't I don't think there is a, you know I, I I don't know. Maybe you'll you'll be able to tell me. I think more more tech uh, expats and. Uh, know, Station F has a really like good uh, expat community uh, in a French tech international community. Uh, oh, fantastic! I've, uh, reaped a lot of the benefits there and spent uh, quite a bit of time networking and going to their programming. Um, oh, and as I mentioned that... to you offline, I'm, I'm trying to start a community of, you know, community and content and community builders. Um, and I'm, I'm going to start putting those events together shortly. So anybody watching that's uh, in Paris or, or greater Europe that wants to join, feel free to, to ping me and I'll get you involved in the list. So uh, it's, it's great to hear you're doing that. Yeah. I think it's it's a big need. Um, and there there's more people in the in the community content space than than ever. Uh, yeah. and IRL is, is coming back in a big way, at least we <laughs> yeah. certainly hope and we think. So yeah, exactly. yeah, it's great to hear you're doing that. Yeah. Well, Josh, thanks a lot for joining today. And uh, it was a pleasure speaking with you. I'm sure we'll speak again. And uh, other than that, let's be in touch. We'll add some of your things in the show notes in case, uh, in case some uh, thoughts come to you. And uh, have a great one. Great. Thanks a lot. And thanks a lot for having me. All right. Cheers. Take care. Thank you.